all that matters is. Wrong! This time we deserve a better class. Heavy Metal Podcast. I'm gonna get a. Then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Stop for Malprocious. Malprocious. What's it say, my precious? Smeagol hates nasty habitses. Smeagol wants to see them dead. Whoa, Smeagol, chill out. So you got a thing against short people. It's not very 2023, you, but whatever. And they're not hobbitses. They're humanses, and they're a band called Elf. Elfses? No, there's four of them, but they call themselves Elf. Singular. No subject verb agreements. Well, yes, it would violate the rules of grammar to say they are elf, but elf is the name of the group, so technically it doesn't. And honestly, I'm a little surprised that you, of all people, would be bothered by that. You know they open for Deep Purple. Ugh, hates Deep Purples. Smeagol calls them Dad Rock. Oh, Dad Rock. How original. Deep Purple's great. They're one of the forefathers of heavy metal. They were very innovative for their time. Oh, heavy metals as venomses, merciful falses, Celtic frosters. Ah, you're a black metal guy, huh? Yeah, that tracks. What are you into? Mayhem? Burzum? Shit like that? No, not never. Mayhem is Nazis. They are Nazis. That is true. Fuck Nazis. Yeah, fuck Nazis. Totally. Hey, do you know Burzum actually means darkness in the black speech? The fake language of Mordor from the Lord of the Rings. Where are you going? My precious, precious. All right. See you later. And just be careful going out that way because there's a volcano right as you open the. No, 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 no. All right. Well. He had a good run. I don't need any more characters on this show anyway, so welcome to And Volume for All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I am your cinnamon host, Crunch, I guess, Quinn. And today, we're not talking about hobbits or Nazis. We're talking about elves, and specifically, one of the most important and influential elves in the history of heavy metal, Ronnie James Dio. Now, I know that part one of this series wasn't the most metal-centric episode of the podcast. I haven't played that much doo-wop on the show since my eight-part deep dive into Dion and the Belmonts. That happened, right? Well, either way, I'm sure it was awful. And like the first part of this series, it probably featured a lot of music that you don't care about. I only know that because it featured a lot of music that I also don't care about. There's only a small handful of those late 50s, early 60s suit-and-tie beat rock bands that are, I think, relevant to the subject of our episode. And because our subject is Ronnie James Dio, the only kind of handful that we have available to us is a small one. He's not a large man, Dio. Have I mentioned that? Have I mentioned that Dio's a, a small person? I just want to make sure you're tracking that. 
Early rock and roll is one of a few streams that flow into the fetid swamp of heavy metal at different times during its evolution as a genre. Most notably among them are the blues by way of 70s proto-metal bands like Sabbath and Zeppelin, and punk by way of 80s Nuwabam bands like Motorhead and Motorhead. And once those cascading creeks of influence, or as we call them in rural Washington state, cricks of influence make their way into the evil koi pond that we call metal, the musical variety that comes from those influences are numerous. I think about it like this. Metal is born from the blues in the 70s, contracts a congenital case of punk in the 80s, and by the 90s, metal has given birth to more subgenres than an entire generation of Duggars. This is usually where I do a little corollary joke because I struggle with impulse control, but I think I'm going to let this one go because uh, Duggars and children, kind of a touchy subject. Oh, look, I did it anyway. But while heavy metal produced a veritable cornucopia, volume 4, track 7, of new musical forms, both the blues and punk are genres whose strengths come in the form of a structural simplicity. The blues uses a series of relatively standardized riffs as a way to feature the virtuosity of the artist. And typically, that artist is the singer-songwriter expressing the plight of an individual, the world, or themselves through the vehicle of their poetry and performance. Now, that's not to say that the blues is just one really long song being performed by different artists across various distances of space and time as some kind of universal song of human sorrow, but... But holy shit, maybe it should be. In other words, the diversity and variety in the blues isn't structural. It doesn't come from an elaborate composition of the music because blues musicians usually couldn't afford more than four instruments. Rather, the variety comes from the interpretation made by the artist. So in other, other words, blues riff and B, and watch me for the changes. It just turns out that there aren't that many changes. Volume 4, track 3. It's what the artist does with the raw material of standardized blues riffs that makes it unique. Like, if you just happen to be in a blues-inspired rock band with an unnervingly charismatic vocalist who can sing his weirdo fucking face off about stuff like having beer for breakfast, you can make some untouchably great music based on some fairly simple riffs. Like this one. also helps to have a guy who can play the organ in a way that makes people actually want to hear it. But according to my notes here, there is only one of those in the world, and he's dead. R.I.P. Ray Masaryk of The Doors. Oh, that was The Doors, by the way. Moving on. If the blues can be considered variety based on simplicity, then punk can be considered sheer, unholy, and utterly unsanitary chaos based on exactly three chords. Four, if you can really play. 
And not only is it cool if you can't, it might even be cooler. Because punk isn't about technique, it's about attitude and energy. It's a slightly more recent iteration of that defiance principle in heavy metal that we talked about in episode one. Punk showed up late to the defiance party. No surprises there. Near the end of the 70s, when a bunch of gutter kids decided they wanted to form a DIY movement in music, through which they could collectively say to the world, I'm sorry my dad didn't buy me a posh guitar or proper lessons like you lot, but I'm still playing a fucking thing as loudly as inhumanly fucking possible, you twats. They just chose to say that halfway through the set opener, which meant they then had to sucker punch their own drummer and huff a half-empty can of wood glue they found backstage, effectively canceling the show and forcing the venue to give out refunds. And while I know that sounds unprofessional, some of us choose to look at a half-empty can of wood glue and wonder if it isn't half full. Something to think about. Hmm. 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 So for the blues, simplicity is a foundation upon which to build something, and for punk, it's a tool of destruction and a symbol of authenticity. Take the Sex Pistols, please. <laughs> but also take them as an example of what I was just talking about. Here's their big fuck-off contribution to music history from their first and should-have-been only album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Lights. That's Anarchy in the UK, where the riff goes, but then on the opener, the Sex Pistols change it up big time with Holidays in the Sun featuring a riff that goes, see, they just left off that last nuh. And while it sort of sounds like the Sex Pistols used a nearly identical riff in two different songs on the same album, they didn't actually do that because it was more like four or five. Now, you may be asking yourself, why? And the answer is, because I like you. And because the Sex Pistols don't. They aren't trying to please critics or listeners or even their bandmates. Their brand of chaotic neutral nihilism is summed up nicely on Holidays in the Sun by none other than Sex Pistols frontman himself, once a sneering but highly enjoyable loudmouth provocateur, now the crazy homeless lady who sleeps in front of a different building on your college campus every night and just doesn't care who sees her poop. John... Johnny Rotten. <clears throat> Johnny Rotten, who wrote, We are the poison in your human machine. No future, no future, no future for you. No future, no future, no future for me. Which is also how he signs my birthday card every year. It's kind of our inside joke. I hope. Anyway, like punk and the blues, early rock and roll also feeds into heavy metal, but unlike those genres, it takes a painfully circuitous route to get there. 
like I just did. But if you think my narrative arcs feel long, try listening to dozens of 50s rock songs every day for a week on YouTube, trying to find a badass track for your metal podcast recorded by four guys who look like a high school audiovisual club going as Matt Foley for Halloween. Call themselves Matt Forley. There's four of them. So on the last episode, I played Stargazer way out of chronological order and ended with Smoke on the Water because I was desperate to include music that wasn't about a fucking soda jerk. 50s rock is so particularly grating to me because it was the first genre of American music that was specifically intended for teenagers. Yes, jazz was popular with kids in the 20s, too, but there were two things that post-World War II America had that post-World War I America didn't. One was television, and the other was a butt truck of baby boomer teenagers. Whoa, that is a cursed idea. And that's why so much of that music was just about insipid horseshit. I mean... Okay, this was the 60s, but pre-pet sound Beach Boys alone, which comes from that kind of music? Ugh. Little Honda? Little Deuce Coupe? 409? Just fuck your car already, Brian. I'm sure that to people who lived through the 50s, the beat culture's influence on pop and rock was shockingly offensive and avant-garde, but I grew up in the 80s, and a bunch of black-clad coffeehouse shit-libs talking about their fucking finger-paint art sounds like where I'll go when I die if I've been a bad person. And I've been a bad person. The term beat was coined by author Jack Kerouac, in reference to his social circle of writers that included William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and implicitly applied to both the musical beat of jazz, but also artists who'd been beaten down by the squares who couldn't get hip to their groovy new philosophy of anti-materialism and personal liberty. And that's why not a single member of the beat generation ever accepted any form of payment for their work. The Nick part of beatnik was attached to the movement as a derogatory term that came from a Russian language suffix for political organizations because even though the beatniks long ago went out of style, the American conservative penchant for everything bad coming from Russia has never not been the sickest of all burns. Not so much after 2016, though, for some reason. The point is, until beat culture turns into counterculture, it's a pretty tame social rebellion that uses a lot of subtle language as a way to tell the man to go fuck himself. In fact, last episode, I played that Dwayne Eddy cover of the song Rumble, and the original version of that song by Link Ray was banned from radio for the quietly subversive nature of its lyrics. Actually, Ray had so carefully coded his message into the track that it almost sounded as if there weren't any lyrics. You clever communist bastards. Officially, it was banned because cultural conservatives thought the song title Rumble was an incitement to group violence. Prove them wrong, libtards. But until Ronnie and the plural nouns transformed themselves into elf in the 70s, all of the music they were making was steeped in early rock and roll. Bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the Animals, the Beach Boys, the Zombies, all of whom are now considered great not because of their genre, but rather the many various ways that they transcended it. Music aficionados elder to me, I know, it seems crazy, but they do exist. Talk about what a revelation A Hard Day's Night was when it came out, which is really tough to understand if you were born a decade after the Beatles broke up. 
I grew up thinking Sgt. Pepper was the album on which Beatles changed music, and it was. But the olds will tell you that they had been revolutionizing rock and roll in ways that were just less visible to the larger culture on at least their four previous albums. And they'll tell you very loudly during the commercial breaks for Judge Judy. Beh, get him, Judy. No good rumblers. So the fact that Dio ascended to metal godhood by way of such a musically conservative genre is really astonishing. And today's subject, which I have taken way too long to put into context, is the story of how Ronnie James Dio made the leap from drag racing to dragon slaying, from dream lover to dream evil, from wishing well to wishing well. Well, wishing I hadn't chosen that song. But as is often the case with And Volume For All, the only way forward is to take a tiny Dio-sized step back to a young Ronnie Padavona, whose early interests included, of course, music, but also literature, particularly romantic fantasy literature. Dio was an avid and lifelong reader of something called books. Books? Books. Boox. Boox. Boox? Boox. Books. Which are like a really long tweet or a really short online recipe. Yep, second online recipe joke in as many episodes because I've always considered myself the sex pistols of heavy metal comedy podcasting. Specifically, it was the works of Scottish historian Sir Walter Scott, romantic English poet John Keats, and American adventure novelist and creator of the Tarzan character Edgar Rice Burroughs that likely occupied the lower half of the Padavona family bookshelf. And as I consider myself a man of letters, specifically A, D, H, and D, I thought I'd take a crack at some of those books that we've been hearing so much about lately to see if I could open a window into the sources of inspiration for young master Padavona. But Edgar Rice Burroughs is more science fiction than fantasy, and Keats is more boring than watching your grandma sleep. So I dug into a narrative poem by Sir Walter Scott on the subject of the Arthurian legend titled The Bridal of Triermaine. Not to be confused with the bridal of Lars von Triermaine, in which the story of England's mythical founder is told in reverse chronology, and Sir Lancelot is beaten to death with a fire extinguisher. I'm not even sure I get that joke. The Bridal of Triermaine was written in 1813 and tells the story of a knight seeking to rescue the illegitimate daughter of King Arthur named Gineth, who was doomed by Merlin to a 500-year-long enchanted sleep within a magical castle. Jeez, what's a guy gotta do to get doomed by Merlin around here? I have a two-year-old. I would get all up in a 500-year-long nap. So take a quick listen and tell me if you don't hear a familiar ring in the works of Sir Walter Scott. Sign and sigil well doth he know, and can bode of weal and woe, of kingdom's fall and fate of wars, from mystic dreams and course of stars. He shall tell if Middle-earth to that enchanting shape gave birth, or if t'was but an airy thing, such as fantastic slumbers bring, framed from the rainbow's varying dyes, or fading tints of western skies. Yeah, man, he even got the rainbow in there. 
I don't know about you, but it's so cool to me to just imagine little Ronnie James Padavona taking a break from his four-hour trumpet lesson to run into the living room and crack open the collected works of Walter Scott and just dream on the legend of King Arthur. Dio's early life seems to have run along two separate but parallel paths. The first being music, which was more or less imposed on him by his father. And the second is this fantastical, imaginary world that he was discovering on his own through literature. And what I was hoping to discover in this episode, as someone seeking to understand the long arc of Dio's career, is why those two paths came together when they did. So I'm going to take a break here and try to figure it out. And when we come back, we'll step into a pair of wedges and put on a really big hat. Because you must be this tall to ride the rides from here on out, mother punchers. Maybe me and Doomy can dust off that really long trench coat we used to fly to Ireland. Anyway, we're off to the elf. So I promise to keep it short when we come back. After Roger Glover and Ian Pace caught Elf set in New York, they were all in. But the entire reason Elf were playing that gig was as an audition for the head of Columbia Records at the time, Clive Davis. Davis passed, but the consolation prize for Elf was that Roger Glover and Ian Pace offered to produce the band's first LP under the Purple record label in England. I still can't find the meaning behind that company name, but I'll keep digging and don't worry. <laughs> Nothing gets past me. So in 1972, freed from the shackles of the doo-wop, boogie-woogie, and beat-inspired tween rock of the 50s and 60s, the band formerly known as most of the English Dictionary emerged anew from their cultural chrysalis, with Dio's cousin Dave Feinstein replacing the late Nick Pantis on guitar, Gary Driscoll retaining his place behind the drum kit, and Mickey Lee Soul, replacing the band's keyboardist, who felt that returning to music after the crash that took the life of Nick Pantis would just be too painful. Also because he was in a full-body cast, and that would also be painful. The unhilariously named Doug Thaler, well, they can't all be Dick Buttoff. Dick Buttoff. So, led by the tiny titan of heavy metal future on bass and vocals, the twin paths of the musical and the fantastical that had been running parallel in Ronnie James Dio's life for over 20 years were finally given the chance to become one. On the self-titled debut album by the band, Elf. Well, she's handsome, she's got everything a woman could need. She never missed a day, 
damn it. God damn it. These people, these short little people. I break your goddamn heart every time. Maybe Gollum was right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Gollum was right. Well, suffice it to say, I was somewhat disappointed in the debut album from Elf. I mean, it isn't Johnny Angel, but it isn't exactly Johnny Blade either. The album isn't bad. I just thought we were going to make a bit more progress toward where we all know this is headed. What happened to the two paths? Sir Walter Scott. Elves. The band is called Elf. It's like naming your band The Grim Reaper and opening your album with a cover of Pretty Woman. Actually, I think that's what Ghost does. I kid Ghost. Ghost, I kid. Don't stop calling. It'd be one thing if they opened with Hoochie Coochie Lady as one of many influences on the album, but the vast majority of Elf's debut record is Southern Blues Rock, which would make perfect sense if a single member of the band was actually from the South. Dio was born in New Hampshire. No, there's nothing to say that bands can't play music that originated from somewhere other than the band did. The Rolling Stones certainly did okay aping southern blues rock for decades, but Kent is technically in the south. Of England. It's just weird because nothing in the band's 14-year history sounds anything like their debut. Like, why are they writing songs called Dixie Lee Junction about how big city living got them on the run? You're from Cortland, New York. It's not exactly Beijing. And there are all these vaguely southern-sounding tropes, the likes of which only we Yankees can make with such confident ignorance, on songs like, Sit down, honey, everything will be all right. And lyrics like, These old boots will keep me moving to a place I long to be, high upon a mountaintop down in Tennessee. Oh yeah? Where'd you get the boots? Was it that Buffalo Exchange in Chelsea? The album also features the obnoxiously American tradition of writing songs about streets. Like the chorus of the opener, which tells us that the titular Hoochie Coochie Lady want to be Park Avenue. And the follow-up track, titled simply First Avenue, wherein Dio employs the object of his affections to come home from Heartbreak City. Yeah, mama, mama come home from First Avenue. Remember how somewhere in our subgenre series I said that the two categories of song that I can't stand are ones where dudes describe sex and or use the phrase rock and roll unironically? Well, I found a third one. Songs about streets. There is another category. Four styles. And finally, while most Americans wouldn't think twice about a dude from the South calling his wife or girlfriend mama just because it kind of works with the dialect, I have never heard any of my Italian-American friends or family members refer to another human as mama who isn't their actual mama. Why you do this to me, Demi? Again, not bad, just kind of weird. Because it's basically musical tourism. Like Elf went to a wedding once in Texas, and now they always wear a cowboy hat to go golfing in Connecticut. I learned my lesson, okay? But putting my gripes of wrath aside, there are some noteworthy exceptions to the southern blues cliché here, like the song I played into the break, I'm Coming Back For You, which kind of sounds like Kiss to me, but like, you know, good. The song just feels much more authentic than most of the rest of the album. 
A lot of people like the closing track, Gambler Gambler, which has a bit of a harder edge to it. The opening sounds like music Iomi will eventually write on Technical Ecstasy or Never Say Die, but it ends up having more of a Gallows Pole by Zeppelin feel, which is a good song. Okay, Clay? I said something nice about Led Zeppelin, all right? Please leave my family alone. So that's largely Elf by Elf. But before we move on to the two latter thirds of the discography, there is one song that, to my ear, bzz, simply does not fit on this album. Lyrically, it's far darker than any of the other tracks and begins with a moody piano ballad in D minor. Minor? On the first Elf record? It, coal miner, maybe, but D minor? Surely not. Big ol' not. Super not. Volume 4, track 5, a thank you. The third song off of Elf's 1972 debut is, as an avid fan of Dio's later work, exactly what I was expecting, even hoping to hear on this album. And as it builds in tempo and intensity, and as Dio allows himself to use his voice the way we all know in retrospect that he can, you begin to get a glimpse of something new. Something truly unique to him, a sound that portends the fantastically gloomy future that we all know awaits us at the hands of Ronnie James Dio. I want to play you the introduction of the song before I jabber at you a little bit longer, and then we'll have to move on. Elf is building here to a rather unexpected resolution, considering the album that surrounds this song. For those of you who know Dio, but not Elf, I wonder if you can hear why I think it is that this is the first clear indication we get of Dio's larger musical project, where the two paths of Dio's early life begin to inch toward one another for the first time and in dramatic fashion. Here is the opening of the third track on Elf's self-titled debut, Nevermore. Can't remember how I got from here to there isn't any reason. Plain and simple, I can't recall. Cock block, right? You can hear the song building, though, can't you? 
driving toward a crescendo, toward a change? Of course, I had to stop you in order to point out that what follows is led not by the piano, for once, and not by the guitar, but rather by a bass riff. A bass riff off the only Elf record on which bass duties are handled exclusively by Ronnie James Dio. And how does Dio choose to conclude this epic introduction to the musical and thematic tensions Elf has been building for a full minute and 40 seconds of Nevermore? Let me wind back just a bit, and then you can hear it for yourself. The conclusion to Nevermore. Like I said, the rest of the album is not bad, but that, that is what I'm here for. In case you couldn't catch the lyrics to the chorus of Nevermore, it reads like this. Clutching to a bundle in the night, and nobody knows. Leaping dogs of winter in the fight, and everyone goes. Another reason that I suspect it's Dio who is pulling Elf in a deeper, darker, more universal direction here is because there are no other lyrics in the entire discography of Elf that sound quite like this. It's all someone trying to get women to leave a street. It feels very modern and pretty derivative, not dissimilar to the subject matter that we talked about all the way back in episode one. It's intrapersonal relationship woes. This boy's gonna leave me, or... Why won't my girl come home? Or this is a really fun street. You really got to see this particular street. But not you, Lorraine. You need to get off this street. Get off of it. 
And then suddenly, on Nevermore, Elf is echoing the romantic poetry of Sir Walter Scott. You can almost transpose the Scottish author's language onto the song. Sign and sigil, well doth he know, and can bode of weal and woe, clutching to a bundle in the night, leaping dogs of winter in the fight. And everyone goes! It feels like the story being told is one that lives outside of time, where myth and dream are located. Though Walter Scott wouldn't have known this, I'm almost certain Dio was aware of Jungian theories on the subconscious and archetypal imagery. The idea that there are universal symbols coded into our brains as humans that reconcile and mediate between the opposing forces within the psyche, manifesting themselves in religious art, mythology, and fairy tales, or, as the foremost authority on the psychological nature of art, known as Mastodon, put it, fundamental side of the human mind, Hulder folk and fairies, so believe. Sir Walter Scott and Ronnie James Dio seem to be drawing their poetry from the same well of archetypal imagery with language meant to evoke something fundamentally human. If you conjure the image of a person clutching a bundle, surrounded by warring dogs on a winter night, the emotional resonance is immediate, at least it is for me. This is primal fear, the deeply vulnerable nature of humanity in the face of an inevitable threat. It's a story with no specific location in space or time that nonetheless activates our survival instinct and our refusal to submit to physical or spiritual annihilation. It also sounds way metal. And because we know Dio's artistic trajectory and his eventual destination in the future, I think the presence of Nevermore suggests that Dio didn't just stumble into Black Sabbath in 1980 and suddenly adopt the persona of a raging metal god. The lyrical and musical conventions that he deliberately brought to this track tells me that this is not a story about how Ronnie James Dio became one of the great figures in heavy metal, but rather he had been one all along and was just waiting for the opportunity to unshackle the monster. Enter Richie Blackmore right after I talk about names some more. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. If you pick up a physical copy of Elf's debut today, just as I believe five or six people did in 1972, you'll find that Dio is listed as Ronnie Padavona one final time. But being the benevolent and forgiving amateur music critic and editorialist that I am, I've chosen to graciously overlook this, the 412th time I've had to mention a nominal change in Dio's early career, because the reasoning behind it is the single most endearing and adorable thing since ever. He chose to use Patavona on the debut so that his parents could see their family name at least once on the back of an album cover. For Dio's father, Patrick Patavona, a man who actively listened to a five-year-old practice the trumpet for four hours a day, every day, and continued to do so for the next 12 years, I can't imagine there was a greater gift that his son could have given him. I mean, the guy deserved a Nobel Peace Prize in a small Pacific island made out of gold bars and cocaine for enduring that shit, but I'm sure reading his own name was nice, too. 
Unfortunately, Elf's debut didn't go much of anywhere, critically or commercially. No chart positions or hit singles. The album just quietly arrived and sat politely in an inconspicuous corner of the music industry, like Jewel after the year 2000. But what, sorry, Jewel, but what it did earn the band was probably even more valuable. Two U.S. tours in the second half of 1972 as the opening act for none other than Deep Purple. It also earned Ronnie James Dio a chance to voice three tracks on Roger Glover's solo album in 1973 upon the bassist's departure from Deep Purple, The Butterfly Ball, and Grasshopper's Feast. The album was then picked up for distribution in the United States as part of a record contract with MGM, and that meant that Dio and Elf would record a follow-up in 1974. But having learned nothing from a lecture on authenticity and musical tourism given to them by a mediocre podcaster 49 years in the future, Elf inexplicably titled their follow-up album Carolina County Ball, including a track by the same name as well as Annie New Orleans and Rock and Roll Rocking Chair Blues. An alternative title was chosen to be released in the States for people who knew that Cortland, New York was decidedly north of the Mason-Dixon line, where the album took its title from the record's second song, LA 59. Because if Elf wasn't going to name-check a southern state in which none of the band members lived, they knew it had to at least be a song about a fucking street in California where they also didn't live. The titular track was, again, not bad, and again, sounded like Kiss but good. That's about as good as the record gets. And Carolina County Ball, also known as LA 59, because nothing can have just one name in this series, I guess, does about as well as the debut, which is not well at all. And with no track roughly equivalent to Nevermore, Elf's second record isn't exactly significant to the history of heavy metal. But what happens next is. So buckle up, chuckle nuts. The spider just caught a couple of flies. And we about to get medieval on the asses. When we come back. One day in the year of the fox came a time remembered well. When the strong young man of the rising sun heard the tolling of the great black bell. One day in the year of the fox when the bell began to ring. Meant the time had come. For one to go to the temple of the king There in the middle of the circle he stands Searching, seeking With just one touch of his trembling hand The answer will be found Daylight waits while the old man sings Heaven, help me And then like the rush of a thousand wings It shines upon the one And the day has just
Months before the release of Carolina County Ball, Richie Blackmore and Deep Purple also released an album, their ninth studio record called Stormbringer. Now, saying Deep Purple is kind of like saying the LA Lakers. It's basically a revolving door for international superstars, and the only question on any album between 1970 and 1984 is whether or not the All-Stars are going to play well together and win a championship. While in later years, they just throw old guys well past their prime onto the roster in hopes that they can finally win a ring. That Gary Payton, Carl Malone era was a weird time for Deep Purple. But this iteration, commonly known as Mark III, which is how fans keep track of the many lineup changes over the years, featured future Whitesnake vocalist and Twitter joke thief David Coverdale, and future guy who was there when Tony Iommi made an album, bassist and vocalist... Glenn Hughes. Mark III had just come off the beloved and classic Purple record, Burn, which went to number three in the UK and number nine in the US, and was something of an unexpected success as the band had just replaced lead singer Ian Gillian and Roger Glover. Stormbringer, by contrast, was still a championship. It was maybe just a Western Conference championship. And the dark clouds that had gathered during the recording of the album were hovering ominously and directly over the head of the band's legendary lead guitarist like he was Dagwood Bumstead's boss at the J.C. Dithers Construction Company. My heart is a bottomless pit. I, I try to fill it with jokes, but all it wants is more. Blackmore, that is. One Richie by name, and one of my favorite characters in the history of heavy metal, because not only is he an indisputably god-tiered legend on the axe, he's also just such a shitty little bitch. Here's what I mean. After the success of Burn, the newest members of the band felt that, having established themselves firmly in the lineup, it was time to start incorporating new elements into the band's sound. Glenn Hughes was particularly insistent on bringing funk to the table, and Blackmore, to his credit, loathed funk. But to his discredit, he refused to just tell the band and would instead stage dramatic shows of disdain during the recording process to let the other members of Deep Purple know that Mr. Blackmore was displeased. As Hughes put it, Richie was never mean. He just wouldn't speak, or he'd send notes through his roadie. It was all very childish which is Glenn Hughes being nice, because for the recording of the song Hold On, Blackmore reluctantly agreed to record the rhythm track, but with the added stipulation that he would only use his thumb. So Richie Blackmore went into the booth, making small talk with the studio employees on his way, and laid down the rhythm guitar for Hold On, using only his thumb and continuing to make small talk while recording. And here's Ian Pace also being nice. Richie's ideas about what he will and won't play are quite firmly stated. Yeah, just not out loud or in, like, a language. But my favorite of Blackmore's silent protests against the incursion of funk into the Perpellian canon was during the recording of the song Holy Man, when Hughes suggested a bottleneck slide for the guitar track. 
There was even a bottleneck in the studio at the moment that he could use. But here's the thing. It was all the way across the room, and you can't really expect someone to get up and walk 15 feet to get an instrument with which to shit out gold records and then walk all the way back to the booth to record a solo. So instead, Blackmore picked up a screwdriver on the table next to him, went into the booth, did one take with it, then summarily dropped the screwdriver and walked out of the studio. And this is what that sounded like. It must have been frustrating for Blackmore in doing his best to demonstrate the acute antipathy he felt toward a song to be so mind-fuckingly talented that he was actually incapable of playing it badly. But it wasn't just the funk that Blackmore objected to. He also didn't feel like the more hard rock-focused material on Stormbringer was up to his incredibly high standard of doing a single take with a DeWalt flathead and said of the album single Highball Shooter, quote, I didn't stick around to find out the title of the song, although I recall it is in the key of A, and it sounds like someone is currently tuned to the key of A whole. The more important question for the subject of Elf and Ronnie James Dio is what Richie Blackmore did want to play. For Stormbringer, Blackmore wanted to include a cover of Black Sheep of the Family by the band Quartermass, and to their credit, the rest of the band refused to put someone else's song on a Deep Purple album. And so, the lead guitarist for one of the biggest rock bands in the world turned his lonely eyes to the opening act for Deep Purple and set up a private recording session to lay down Black Sheep of the Family with the members of Elf to be released as the first single off of his first solo album. But the session was so successful, Blackmore later saying that Dio's voice sent shivers down his spine, that he reached out to Dio shortly thereafter and asked if he had an interest in recording an original song. And it is here that the two paths in Ronnie James Dio's life, the musical and the fantastical, no longer creep incrementally closer to one another, but rather collapse into each other like a dying star and produce a creative supernova that projects into the future of heavy metal in such a dazzling and definitive array that the spectrum of color created in that event remains at this moment as vibrant and influential as it was in the immediate aftermath of its creation, if not more. But I'll get to that point later. You see, Richie Blackmore didn't just want to do quartermass covers. At the time, he was taking all his inspiration from 15th and 16th century medieval music and its chord structures. We don't know if Deep Purple's guitarist mentioned that in his conversation with Elf's frontman, but Dio went ahead and wrote a song for the session that same night. Intended as a B-side to Black Sheep of the Family, the song was called 16th Century Greensleeves and would appear as the penultimate track on the 1975 debut album from the band that would emerge out of the ashes of Elf. 
a binary partnership between Ronnie James Dio and Richie Blackmore that would produce one of the greatest album trilogies to come out of the infancy of heavy metal and serving as a bridge between the incipient metal blueprint of Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and the evolutionary mutations of the 80s, which would eventually produce the unspeakable abomination that is heavy metal in all its modern forms. Though the two cosmic forces would not come officially together yet, when you listen to 16th century Greensleeves, the sound that you are hearing is coming from both the future and the past. The end of one band that has yet to occur and the beginning of another that the universe has been slowly weaving together for almost two decades. That sound is the birth of a new musical entity that would be known as Rainbow. I just want to quickly remind you about the plot of Sir Walter Scott's Arthurian narrative, The Bridal of Triermaine. It's the story of a knight seeking to rescue the illegitimate daughter of King Arthur, doomed by Merlin to a 500-year-long enchanted sleep within a magical castle. And here are the opening lyrics to the first verse and chorus to 16th century Greensleeves. It's only been an hour since he locked her in the tower. The time has come. He must be undone. Meet me when the sun is in the western skies. The fighting must begin before another someone dies. Crossbows in the firelight. Green sleeves waving. Madman raving. Through the shattered night. Coincidence? It's totally not. Dio turned the bridal of Triermain into 16th century green sleeves. I have zero confirmation that Sir Walter Scott was the inspiration for that track, but he totally was. Dio even directly echoes Scott's phrasing of or fading tints of western skies with the lyric, meet me when the sun is in the western skies. So I don't know if anyone has pointed out that connection before, but if not, first. <laughs> okay. That felt really good. Let's have fun. In December of 1974, Elf went back into the studio to record their third album, Trying to Burn the Sun. A proggier, jazzier record than the previous two, but again, for a metalhead discovering Dio's early work retroactively, it's another disappointing offering that continued the band's proclivity for Southern cosplay with songs like Black Swampy Water and Good Time Music. 
and their misplaced affection for asphalt on Liberty Road and Streetwalker. Can someone please get Lorraine a car or a bike? Get off the road, Lorraine. Get off. Streetwalker closes the album and feels a bit like Elf's version of Dirty Women, which has yet to be recorded on this timeline. But the association led me to wonder if our boy in Birmingham, Mr. Tony Iommi himself, was aware of this band that had been opening for his friend Richie Blackmore's for the last two years. Black Sabbath would release Sabotage later in 1975, but their previous record was also the proggiest and jazziest of their discography, and the track leading up to the close of Trying to Burn the Sun called Wonder World, though far short of Iommi's penchant for heaviness, would not sound entirely out of place on Black Sabbath's fifth LP, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Take a listen. I'm a fire. Curiouser and curiouser. Huh? Oh. Oh. Not likely, but an interesting hypothetical nonetheless. However, we ought to set aside such thoughts for the moment because Richie Blackmore had other plans for Ronnie James Dio. Blackmore, now officially out of Deep Purple after the release of Stormbringer and having fulfilled his touring obligations, asked Dio to join him for a new project. Dio, to his credit, reportedly told Blackmore, if you want me, you have to take the rest of the band with me, to which Blackmore agreed. But to Dio's discredit, guitarist Steve Edwards, who'd taken over after the exit of Dio's cousin Dave Feinstein, was quietly fired to make room for Richie Blackmore on lead. So quietly, in fact, that Dio allegedly fired the guitarist with silence. Edwards claimed that Dio never spoke to him or called him, but that he found out about his release from a Rolling Stone article published on the formation of Rainbow. Hey, you made it into Rolling Stone! Bucket list! The bucket was just Richie Blackmore's garbage can, but don't worry, you'll have plenty of company soon enough. And so shortly after the release of Trying to Burn the Sun in 1975, the band known as Elf was officially over and the remaining members formed the temporarily titled Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, which released their eponymous debut in the same year. 
a final note on Elf's final album and Dio's final name. During the lead-up to its release, at one point Richie Blackmore casually asked Dio, What's your second name? To which Dio replied, James. Blackmore then asked, Why don't you include it in your stage name? And so, on Trying to Burn the Sun, the man of a billion and one names was credited for the first time as Ronnie James Dio. And so he would be credited on each and every release for the next 35 years. And on the next, and volume for all, we are going to wholly deep dive headlong into Rainbow's multi-hued discography and introduce the next stage of evolution in the inimitable career of Ronnie James Dio. We're leaving behind the southern blues rock tradition that we were never actually a part of. And roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. On the next, and volume for all.